It's our Thought Leader Thursday segment here on Metro FM Talk. And uh, this uh, evening, uh, we have the second part of a conversation we started off last week with uh, founder at the Center for De Economic Development and Transformation, and that is uh, Tuma Kubule. Pratuma, uh, I did promise you last week that uh, I'm going to go and make representations to Abba Party uh, to try and at least uh, get a second part of our conversation because I felt that there was a lot we couldn't cover. So, uh, yeah, that's been successful uh, to some extent. But um, last week we, we touched on your background, um, your history also as a young political prisoner, as a student in the UK, coming back then as a financial journalist. Um, and I'm quite interested, I guess, in, in that period now around the early 2000s. You, you were part of the BE Commission. You contributed to the landmark report. Uh, talk to us about that time, um, and I guess uh, compare and contrast it to where we are now when it comes to BE. Thank you so much. Um, I didn't think I'd be called back so quickly. But I have to, as I said last week, um, you know, when I came back to the country, you know, I, was, uh, I wasn't like, I didn't have, um, I was generally a social democrat, you know, and um, I, I identified as a social democrat. It's just a swear word nowadays. And I sort of, you know, took things at face value in terms of the intentions of our government and so on. And I had been writing a lot about a lot of black economic empowerment and so forth. And I was called to become the chief, the researcher at the Black Economic Empowerment Commission together with um, my colleague Andy Brown. And um, we were reporting to Professor Itumele Mosala and then the chairman of the commission was, um, was President Cyril Ramaphosa. And um, yes, and then there were, um, it was like an incredible period in my life. Um, a lot of the views that I come, come have now were, were formed during that period. Um, because I had to look really seriously at what had happened in South Africa for the first seven, seven years of our democracy. You know, because we're in a honeymoon phase and most of us didn't interrogate what had been happening mm. um, quite as seriously as we should. You know, like we were celebrating for about too long about our democracy. And it was an incredible period. I just have to talk about some of the highlights. We were at the sure, Misty, sure. Hills, Misty Hills Hotel. I'll never forget this. Um, and there was some, it was like a truth commission where we, all the banks came to give evidence. You know, it was like the Zonda Commission. And all the banks came to give evidence about why they hadn't um, supported transformation. They had to um, talk about their funding models. And, you know, it was incredible. Like all the big banks, Standard Bank, First Brand, all of them were there presenting um, and their views on what we should do in terms of trading the economy. And there were so many incredible people who were part of that process. We debated it over about almost two years. And, um, and because remember that there had been, a, there had been the first wave of BE transactions, which mm. ended during the late 80s uh, when there was a emerging market crisis in Asia that went across to Russia and, and to the rest of the emerging markets, you know. So we had to interrogate this thing. Our deputy chair was Gavin Peterson, who had been deputy president of the, of the Black Management Forum. There were mm. people like Lawton Glovu and Royal Kosa. It was a, it was a, and, and Sadogazi, Dagile Shongwane, Danisa Baloye, and all those people. So I was there in the midst of such amazing South Africans debating the future of our country, and I really put every effort into it, yeah. yeah. Mm, mm. Yes, yeah. You, you then put together, I guess, a landmark report, um, yes. and effectively by the time that comes out, PE is already in what many people see as its second phase. 
Um, yes. A lot of deals coming through around 2006, 2007. Uh, and then, of course, financial crisis, 2007, eight. Uh, and then many of those deals, I guess, wind up after that uh, point. Uh, and for many people who are part of those deals, I mean, I think of Sasolin Zalo, um, you know, and many of the other ones that didn't go so well. Uh, there were a few lessons from those that uh, I guess were as much a reflection of the process as they were of our macroeconomic framework, Pratum. Okay, so yes, yes, and people don't get this. Okay, so it starts around I think 2003, uh, the second the second wave started around the early 2000s, but it gathers momentum in 2003, and then strangely the markets started turned after. You know, after Saddam, was it the Iraq invasion in 2003? For some weird reason, that's when the world markets changed, you know. And we had this amazing um, boom in terms of mining shares and in terms of banking shares. You know, the whole stock exchange, I think it trebled during that period. And the thing about it is that the the transactions that were successful were the ones that happened early during that phase. There were two landmark transactions. It was... um, the listing of ARM African Rainbow Minerals in September 2003 and the purchase of um, Sandland by the same consortium in December 2003. So the ones that purchased earlier who got the timing right, they managed to get a lot of value. And then the ones that purchased later didn't create so much value. An example is Cecil and Zalo. It just came too late during that upward cycle. And there were amazing successes. I mean, people talk about those, the Kumba Iron Ore one, where... Um, they created so much money because there was, the iron ore prices went up, I think, a thousand percent because of the boom in China in terms of the construction that was going on in China. We're just shipping so much iron ore. And if you remember in the town, in the, the workers of Kumba got a cash payout of half a million rands in the town. So there were some successful deals. And the first rand transaction created net value of 24 billion rands. Kumba created, I think, more than 20 billion rands for the participants. There were some successful transactions. Now, what you were saying is that it's the macroeconomic environment that is the biggest driver of success in DE. Mm. The, 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 the structuring, people tend to focus on the micro issues, the structuring of the transactions. But the point is, even a badly structured transaction, and I'll, I'll talk about Northern Platinum, which I thought at the time was a badly structured transaction. But now it matured recently. Um, it, it, I, I, still let, I still was trying to talk to Lazarus then this week and um, oh. Brian, the, the, the founders of this deal, but it was another successful one um, during the coronavirus crisis because it rode the wave of the, the platinum prices. So oh. I thought it was too expensive. But the point is, it was a badly structured deal, but it managed to, because of the macroeconomic drivers. Now, during that period, the economy grew by 5% a year. We created 3.1 million jobs. So the reasons why we failed to transform our economy economically are the same, um, in terms of ownership, are the same reasons why we failed to create um, jobs for our people, eliminate mm-hmm. poverty. So the, uh, what I find frustrating about the black business, because they have a narrow conception of what causes their success. They're just saying that you can't be an island of, of wealth or poverty, you know, an island of wealth in a sea of poverty. Do you see what I'm saying? So I think black business people don't understand it because a growing, I know a growing economy doesn't lift every single bolt, but we need a growing economy. Black business should pay more attention. I argue with them all the time. I talk to them and say, like, you've got to pay more attention to economic policy and not just Mm. look at, um, um, you know, employment equity. 
Yes, yes. And, and looking at, you know, Ayabong has been appointed to the board of Sandam. Let's send a crop of mm. congratulations and, you know, you know, and events and all that. So I think that black business must look more at the macroeconomic drivers of sure, the success sure. of black business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I want us to pause here for a second and take a quick spot break. Asbuya. Uh, let's take a look at uh, uh, fiscal policy, I guess, uh, continuing with that theme of uh, macroeconomic policy, uh, because uh, I guess that's where the big contests and contestations are. Uh, and I'd love to hear some of your perspectives, Pratuma, on that particular one. We'll continue after this. Twenty-one minutes it is after eight p.m. It's our Thought Leader Thursday segment, and uh, this Thursday it's part two of our discussion with uh, uh, economist, author, and uh, activist, and uh, the founder of the Center for Economic Development and Transformation, uh, Tuma Kubule. Now, Pratuma, before we went to the break, we were talking about BE, and I guess um, the interface with that and economic policy and our macroeconomic framework, uh, and uh, I guess the other element that is is probably the role that the macroeconomic framework plays in the determination of some of the prices that are material to these deals, uh, in particular the interest rate. And uh, that's certainly, I guess, uh, an element in any debt finance deal that's always a major risk. But let's come back to, to fiscal policy. Um, many people will say, you know, over the last 15 years or so, we've had a broadly expansionary fiscal policy. Uh, we've ratcheted up a lot of debt. The chickens are coming home to roost. It's time for us to have austerity now so that we're able to deal with our debt situation. Why do you disagree with that? Okay, so let's see. Okay, so um, I was actually in a panel discussion at Cosato, I think yesterday or the day before, and Musa Sibeko, a young, very promising economist, she said, you know, Treasury has made up um, their own definition of what constitutes um, um, austerity and what constitutes expansion of fiscal policy. So they say, and um, according to which I may be explaining not exactly why she said it. Their definition is that if the debt increases, then there has been expansion in fiscal policy. But that's actually not true because the mm. classic textbook example of that is Greece. So I just have to explain that um, Greece, um, the, the, when you apply, I, let me just start here, is that we're talking about fiscal policy, but there's this new school of thought that, um, you know, about five years ago, um, you know, I, it's called modern monetary theory. And I've never believed in this artificial separation. Yeah, Stephanie Kelton. Mm. Yes, yes, between monetary yeah. and fiscal policy. And um, MMT came, came around, started being talked about five, six years ago um, mm. in the mainstream. And, you know, you know, I had no clue what it was. And, you know, I, my sons were with their mothers in Ethiopia and, um, and what you call it in Tanzania over Christmas. I decided I'm going to read as much as possible um, without um, parenting duties um, about MMT. I think after a month, I still wasn't the wiser. But MMT has really gate-crashed into the mainstream of economic thought right now. Hmm. And you saw this week that um, Biden had a $1.9 trillion stimulus, and um, he's now talking about a $2 trillion um, stimulus for infrastructure. And after the $2 trillion, there'll be another $1 trillion stimulus. Hmm. And the economist was saying the amazing thing now is that nobody is asking where the money is going to come from because Congress authorizes and then they spend. And then in the UK, I was watching this thing. 92% of the UK's 350 billion pound COVID response was financed by the Bank of England. So what I'm trying to say is that what MMT teaches us is that we shouldn't separate the two 
because the central mm-hmm. banks can finance. Because you've got this debate, I was listening now to this whole debate around tertiary education, which is my later obsession. And people are saying, no, if we don't fund SAA, um, we, we could have paid for tertiary. That's a false menu that Treasury has put us into. Now, mm. why? I, let, let me just talk about the accumulation of the debt. So there have been two phases since the global financial crisis. I look at 2010 to 2013. Um, I don't have the figures in front of me. The economy um, grows by about just under 3% a year. We create um, quite a lot of jobs. I can't remember what the number is. I think it was 2 million to 3 million jobs. But what happens then is that um, there's a graph from Treasury which shows that during that period, there was a tax surplus, you know, taxes above what was expected of about 30 billion rands. So guess what happens when the austerity starts? Um, in about 2014, most of us agree, um, then um, the growth collapses to one, our trend growth rate between 2014, 2019 collapses to about 1%. And that is what, and then Treasury's graph shows that there was a 250 billion rand tax, tax shortfall during that period when they were applying the austerity policies. Now, austerity doesn't necessarily, it means, so I think, um, so the, the, the government, Infrastructure spending collapsed by about 22% during that period, and um, government consumption spending also collapsed. Um, collapsed, and um, wow. but, I mean, but it didn't collapse, reduce negatively like infrastructure spending, but it reduced about 1% a year over that period. So what I'm trying to say is that when the you, people mustn't think that the national budget is like a household budget, you know, the national budget doesn't operate because the household does not issue the currency that it spends. Um, a household, there's an independence between income and spending in the household. So if you cut your, your spending doesn't impact on your input in your income, but a government, because it's such a big portion of the economy, when it cuts its spending, it reduces the GDP, which is the bottom half of the GDP of the debt to GDP ratio. So, I mean, and what and what when a country when a and a government spends more money, there's a multiplier and it increases and um, the growth of the economy. If I if I explain it well, yeah, yeah. And I guess I mean that that that's also been the contentious part of that debate. I mean I remember you know uh, a few months ago, um, Finance Minister Tito Mboweni putting out an article saying their aggressive debt reduction strategy is based on evidence, and this evidence is suggesting that if you reach ninety percent of debt to GDP. Uh, then any spending you have effectively has a negative multiplier. And I sat there and I was like, what economics did I study? Because that certainly is the most counterintuitive thing I've ever heard. What, what do you make of those arguments that go and take you know, some discredited literature and effectively bandy that about as uh, the evidence um, that then informs whatever policy decisions are made? Yeah, without going to the technical details, basically Treasury had made up a theory, you know, and let, let me just talk about the issue of debt now. So what has happened during the corona crisis is that um, almost every single country had the same shock to their economy and GDP. Uh, world stimulus packages were $14 trillion, um, 16% of global GDP. Now, how, why should South Africa be different in the sense that that is, that is what every single country is doing? I follow the Asian countries like South Korea is on five stimulus packages and Singapore is on four and Hong Kong and so forth. So every single country is reflating its way out of this crisis. Now, what they are saying is that um, government spending has got a negative multiplier. I think they're, they're meaning because of corruption and so forth, but I'm, I don't know. Like, I don't know where they get it from. It just makes no sense, you know, whatsoever. Yeah, yeah.
I guess it's uh, yeah one of those things. I mean that um, it will remain a contentious debate. It certainly isn't uh, a debate just that is confined to the academy between you know the yeah, orthodoxy yeah, yeah, and the yeah, orthodoxy, yeah, but yeah, is effectively yeah. things that affect people's lives. Duma, I mean, if, if we're talking about you know, uh, um, less than population growth and less than inflation increases in social grants, in child support grants, you know, in uh, caregiver grants and many of the other welfare mechanisms that we have. That has implications on the ground. It has implications on how much many households can spend who are reliant on these grants. So it's not just, yes, a, it, I guess, a theoretical it, matter. No, it's not. Let me give you an example. So um, three times in the budget speech, the finance minister says it is not an austerity budget. Many people were telling me that he was responding to me. But this is a blatant and obvious line because I've read every single of the 250 pages in the budget review and every one of them talks about fiscal consolidation and austerity. Consolidated non-interest mm. spending would decline by 5% a year. And if you add population at 6.6% a year, social grants down 36 billion rands. A higher education down 25 billion rands, and the public sector wage bill, and they're cutting 144 billion rands from that. Every single item in the budget, there's red ink and it's cutting. And the major debate that's coming now is that, um, you know, like when they announce these um, cuts to higher education, um, what Treasury says in the budget review is that it will re result in a decrease in first year enrollment in tertiary education. Now, the Constitution says there must be progressive realization of socioeconomic rights. So many mm. of us are arguing are beginning to look at the intersection between human rights and the economy. To what extent does this budget, for the first time, economists and lawyers and constitutional experts have been coming together over the last month since the budget to say, let's unpack this budget. Um, what is it doing to the Constitution? And I'm really disappointed to defend our democracy and their cherry-picking of the Constitution, and they never have anything to say about the, you know, the erosion of socioeconomic rights um, by the government and with, because of their economic policies. They've got a narrow civil liberties um, look, cherry-picking of what is in the Constitution. Our Constitution protects... Um, talks about the progressive realization of socioeconomic rights and the national treasury, when they do any, any budget, they have to look at what will this mean for socioeconomic mm. rights, yeah, progressive realization yeah. of socioeconomic rights. And socioeconomic rights, as Lucy was saying, it's not something that you can only do when the economy is growing. You have to do it at all times. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Pratuma, last question on my end. Um, and yeah, it just seems, you know, uh, whenever we chat like this, the time gets gobbled up. You were part of a panel a few years ago that advised the then Economic Development Minister Ibrahim Patel on the Walmart investment in MassMart. Now, I guess by many accounts, that's seen, least of all for Walmart, to have been, I guess, a deal that has been hard hit by COVID-19. We also heard Coca-Cola saying, you know, they're going to give a considerable amount to their workers in an employee share ownership scheme. When you look at those issues and you look at those alongside the challenges of deindustrialization, the challenges of a very oligopolistic market structure. Are these uh, meaningful enough interventions, or I guess maybe the question is, how do we take them further than maybe where they are now? Okay, so, so, so uh, you know, I can't actually remember what the issues were at, at Walmart at the time, but the point is the Walmart investment in MassMart has been one of, it's a disaster of a, of a transaction. The company is the shadow of what it formed. 
you know, like it's, it's one of these destructive foreign investments that didn't really add much to the country uh, for many reasons. Yeah, and and the country is much smaller than it was at that time, and so forth. Now back to the Coca-Cola. I used to work for as an advisor to Coca-Cola, and for many years we tried to persuade them that they have to do a BE deal. You know, we had um, there was such an amazing company, you know, but um, they just didn't see it. And I'm really, I was really curious to find out that they've actually decided eventually to do a PE transaction. Yeah, I couldn't understand. But anyway, I, don't, I didn't look at it very closely, but I think it's something that everything, everybody should welcome. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. 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 Patrona, Patrona, we'll have to, le- we'll have to leave it there. Um, yeah, a lot I wanted us to talk about and touch on, uh, even, I guess, to get some of your views on what's happening out in the U.S. with Amazon and the organization around that. But uh, we'll certainly maybe have to uh, talk about that one over coffee. But thank you very much uh, for taking time out to speak to us this evening here on Metro FM Talk. All of the best as uh, you continue, I guess, to hold that ground uh, Yeah, uh, where the orthodoxy, I guess, uh, is coming under a lot of scrutiny and fire. Tumar Kubula, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Aya. He's the founder there of the Center for Economic Development and Transformation and joining us as our thought leader on this Thursday. We-